welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you very much. I love you all. Well, so far, the feedback I've got is I should continue as I'm doing. And uh, I was going to, I guess in reflection, I was going to do that anyway. Because <laughs> I didn't get any of them funny feelings that you get in your spine when you say, you know, the kind that we're so used to. The kind that say, oh boy, I was not doing what I should have been doing. <laughs> I've had enough of them feelings to last me a lifetime. <laughs> and now we've got the rest of our lives to fashion recovery and to aid God in recovery and to get out of God's way so God can bring us recovery and to quit frustrating the recovery that God is offering us. In the early days of this program, I had to I had a terrible problem with women. I loved to shuck and jive a woman. That was my hit. You know when you get out of hospital with in surgery, you come out of surgery rather and you come back to your bed and there you got right beside your bed you got a shooter. And you hit the shooter and you get a, a hit of morphine to take away the pain. And I, I'd be using my shooter when I'd come out there and that pain would be bad. But because I'm so sensitive to drugs, and we are all especially here in this group, especially sensitive to drugs. Because the drugs that lust produces in our body just send us into orbit. We are also tremendously susceptible to pictures and images. And we can see a sexual image once, like a hauntingly beautiful woman's face, or for a woman a hauntingly beautiful man's face, and we'll never forget it. Okay, I'm a psychologist, and intelligence and memory and those things are things I know something about. With that exceptional variation of humanity, we have this exceptional sensitivity to images. And I don't want any more images in my head than I already have. I'd be driving through a mountain canyon. I had this beautiful home in a mountain valley for 25 years in Bozeman. I'd be driving to town in my little red Mazda pickup, B-22 Mazda pickup. And all of a sudden, I look up in my head, and I'm watching. There's a tape playing of an intense intercourse with this woman I had the affair with. And I immediately now, a lot of times, I'll find, instead of having to make, think about praying, say, God help me, and our Father who art in heaven, when I look up and see that image and I, I look over in the other part of me and I'm already praying. So I've done that so much that it's instinctive almost without thinking that I'm immediately when there's a lustful situation that I'm praying before I even know that I need to pray. And I look at that and I say I don't want any more of those pictures ever in my mind. So about the only television that I watch is the Boston Celtics basketball games. That's a religious holy day of obligation when the Celtics. 
I gave up one last night to come to you slobs. How, how do we do against the Nets? Anybody follow that? Do we win or lose against the Nets? Anybody know? What a bunch of crumb bums. That's one of the things I taught Harvey in recovery is to get some hobbies. I like I asked this one sexaholic, what do you do for enjoyment? Well, look at catalog with women's pictures in. I said, no, I mean a hobby. <laughs> but when I first came to this program, uh, the, the first message I carried really, uh, well, other than Oklahoma City, was uh, 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 to Salt Lake City, where I carried a message to overeaters, and that's where Tandra, a former prostitute, and Steve got a meeting started. So when I'd go to those early conferences, I just had to take myself in the hand and say, go to the men. I wanted to go to the women because uh, there are some, uh, you know, women's faces are just a tremendous drug for me. Okay, what kind of kindness is it to bring that attitude to a woman? It's a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, we had a especially creepy essay guy in Bozeman and he was watching... Um, a man and a young man and a young woman in a and uh, each of them had little bicycle seats or little carriers behind their seats and they had two little kids each of them on their bicycles and the guy went by with his little kid in his seat and the woman went by with her little kid in her seat and this guy standing there looking at her one of us and she looks at him as she goes by him and says creep because he's a creep he looks at people creep as creeps do and in, polluted the environment that that woman was occupying in that time as she was driving by him. Okay, so I had to, year, for years, in the early years of this program, take myself by the hand and make myself go to the guys. It took years of that. Until now, it is intuitive and automatic, and I have so many men that I love at conferences. You know, and, and some of your faces I've seen over and over at conferences, and I just love to see those faces. This guy here, this, he lights up the damn room with his face. I just love it. You know, and Tim and Dan, you know, I've seen them so much. So now when I go to a conference, I find when I get home, a lot of times I haven't even talked to the women that I really should have talked to, like Sylvia, who were with, you know, uh, had so much together. I brought Sylvia into the program. And when a woman will call me, and because uh, mine is I'm the contact number for Bozeman or from around the country, and calls me for information on women, I don't know SA women to refer to to sponsor them. Because I just know uh, just Sylvia and Robin, and uh, are the only two SA women that I know well enough to know what their programs are like. And Robin, partly because she's Terry's wife. In fact, I knew her as an you know as a, through Terry. For some years before I knew her as a as an SA, so that we can be transformed by God, we can change from butterflies or from caterpillars to butterflies, if we will allow God the opportunity to do that work. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you some things. I'm gonna do some work that, in a way, wasn't even done in AA. Okay, what's the true A's got some secrets, one of them particularly. 
Uh, in Nan Robertson's book uh, on Alcoholics Anonymous, she tells the story, and this, uh, there's a point to this. I'm not talking about tearing down great people. Uh, the point is, is nobody is great. We're all human beings. And we don't belong on pedestals. Nobody does. But Bill had an affair with one of the women in AA. I think it was central office woman AA. And then part of the royalties of the big book went to her. And then also the AA guys didn't know, the AA part of the organization didn't know that Bill was getting royalties from the book at first. So what Bill had is he had uh, two, he didn't set it up this way, uh, but it, it served his purposes. He had the, the, uh, the two different groups. The first group was the non-alcoholic board of directors, and then he had the alcoholic group that was elected by membership gradually from the fellowship. But it was the board that he had appointed of non-alcoholic trustees who uh, knew of the contract uh, that allowed for some of the royalties of the, the book to go to Bill's mistress. Okay, that's uh, that's as good as we can do. But it isn't as good as uh, as we can as we'd like to do. And it's dangerous, especially for us in Sexaholics Anonymous, to have secrets. Dangerous for a couple of reasons. Because one of the big ways that you have to separate yourself from me is to put me higher than I should be, and that way you don't need to deal with me and what I am. And the answer is, I'm just... Uh, and you say, well, I know, he's just a poor dumb slob like us. But you say it half-heartedly and you don't really believe it. Because I've seen it in years in AA with Bill and Bob. And those people were set apart in a way by so many AAs that is uh, appropriate in one way but inappropriate if you carry it too far. And it's so striking to me that it's in Cleveland that we're doing this. Um, where... Uh, and the, and the money that Bill and Bob used uh, in the early days, the Rockefeller gave them, uh, that stuff was not uh, as well known in the early days in AA, and it's only in later history that it came out clearly. And our activities, financial and other activities in SA, are an open book in almost all areas except one, and I'm going to open that book for you right today, right now. It's very difficult for me to do, and it's taken 13 years of hard work in the fellowship to get to the point where I can even attempt it. And I'll screw up a lot here. But I know I have your forbearance. The amazing sobriety that I saw last night shows me that I'm in a safe haven. And so much of the fellowship knowledge is in my hands and in my head because... What happened is uh, two crucial things is I started in the fellowship and the first meeting I walked into I took my wife to an, a Neurotics Anonymous meeting and I felt the love and warmth of the 12 steps and knew I belonged there. I had a heart attack when I was 35. I'd been to a psychiatrist. I knew there was something wrong with me. I'd been always looking. I'd been hungry for God from the time I was 17. I went to the Baptist minister and said there's got to be something more. What is it? He said read Butler's Lives of the Saints. And the answer was, it would have been in Butler's Lives of the Saints, but I knew that no book could communicate itself to me. But I mean, I didn't know that consciously then, but I just thought, well, it's not going to be, I, I can't find it in a book. 
And so I never even went and read that book and still haven't. But that was, I was hungry for God from those times on. And so when I walked in that first fellowship meeting in uh, the fall of 1960, or 18, yeah, 1966, I knew, my God, I'd come home. That What I'd taken my wife to, I belonged in, and I stayed there for myself. And I could see these neurotic housewives that I was in this meeting with were insane. But I couldn't see that I was insane. I just won an award for the outstanding professor on the University of Minnesota campus and established successful businesses and all kinds of stuff. And they were trying to figure out how they could get through the next five minutes, where it's where the first time I heard five minutes at a time without com committing suicide. So I was not nuts like they were. Well, it took me a while to, to learn. <laughs> but I loved the fellowship. And I experienced nothing but overwhelming joy and love and beauty from the fellowship. And that was partly my personality. I'm an introvert, but I loved the fellowship. Okay, out in California, ten years later, a guy named Roy, who's a very frightened, very, very uh, withdrawn and inward kind of person, but an unbelievably inspired man, and with a tremendous gift, a seminarian, who dropped out of seminary in his last year because he saw his load of lust was so bad. And very frightened. He walked into AA because he read that Time article and uh, said that AA addiction must be like uh, sexual addiction and tried to take that idea to AA and out of AA. And you can imagine what the hell he must have received in that fellowship. Because any of you who have been in AA and, AA and SA know that we ain't a popular topic in AA. And when I, uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've sat in many closed AA meetings in Bozeman in the early days. I was that much a member of the AA community. But I tell you, when I joined SA, all of a sudden there's a bunch of AAs did stop talking to me. Uh, so you can imagine the agony he had trying to create an SA fellowship within AA. So his meetings were not the warm and loving meetings that I had experienced, plus his personality. So what Roy had done, and from 76 when he had the idea until 83 when I came along, is Roy had managed to destroy, I, I'd guess, two L.A. meetings. Maybe just one, but at least two. And there were no L.A. meeting, there was no L.A. meeting going on at the time I came in in 83. And uh, then we had a little interchange after a month, and we parted ways. And But we still were talking, and in fact, he told me he had just going to New York and kicked the New York group out because they weren't properly proper SA and uh, so they were out of the fellowship but when he was in New York uh, that was in January uh, when he was in New York the group that was still going in California he called them and they told him Roy we're having so much fun without you we'd rather you wouldn't come back to our group when you, when you come back yeah, that's no fun I don't think anybody here has ever heard that from a group but Roy had to hear that so when I came in in, in uh, uh, gung-ho in 83, there was nobody in Phoenix that believed my sponsor said, well, we got to stop lusting. But when he gave me the handbook to go to, or the meeting guide to go to Oklahoma City to start a meeting up, uh, he crossed out and be, desired to stop lusting, he crossed out and become sexually sober from the meeting guide. I've still got a copy of that meeting guide. In fact, that's probably one of my files that I brought along here. Okay, that's what I grew up in. But God helped me and helped me through the fellowship. So that in 30 days I had to move to Oklahoma City to work with my family in aftercare and alcoholism. And I went to an AA meeting, I don't like to do this, uh, and said that I'm a, an open AA meeting and said that I was a sexaholic. And that's where Sylvia heard about it. And then 
I made another talk there at my son's uh, treatment center where he was a counselor, and some other people got interested, and we got an SA group going in Cleveland, or in, in um, Oklahoma, rather. Sylvia was one of the first to come in. Sylvia heard my talk on Friday and went out and had one last fling with her boyfriend on the weekend and then came in the next Tuesday. <laughs> That's a, quite a disease we got. I kid her about that story. And uh, uh, so we had an Oklahoma City group going. No, here it is. This is the material that I was handed as and was sent out from central office as to what AA is about. We had a little, the, little pamphlet and then this material. So I said, I can't make any sense of this, but um, uh, I don't want to hand out just a bunch of, of stuff. I didn't know what order it went in or anything. So I took it down to Kinko's, copied it up, and put uh, in, printed out in my printing in Sexaholics Anonymous, put the date on of the material, which is March of 82, on the cover and sold it for $3, the cost of the Xeroxing, to our members so they'd have a book. Okay. When Roy found out about this, he nearly pooped. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I'd put in here was some SAA literature, a piece of SAA literature, because that was handed to me and I thought it was SA. But our group used to be SAA in Phoenix. It was changed to SA by Kent just a while before I'd come in. And Roy just blew a gas and I said, well, take it off. No problem. I don't, I'm not, I don't carry any flame for anything. Because my job was to be obedient to the program. Now, Roy would have liked if I would have been obedient to him, but I wasn't. I was very insubordinate. I was just totally careless about obeying what he wanted to do. That's part of my personality. I will not follow a rule unless I know that rule is really useful. That's, uh, that's my temperament type. I'm an INTJ, for those of you who know the Meyer-Briggs system, a one out of a hundred kind of person, a very weird weirdo, but I have my uses. So so this, when, when Roy saw this, he also pooped because he, he hated that being represented as the book of Sexaholics Anonymous, but it was the best of what we had available. So he went to work, and then they came out with, with this in this form, which is all fastened together. It's, you know, beautifully punched. And, and so this was the SA big book that you bought then in for the next few years. And then that motivated him to do some more writing. And then here's a, here's a little later version of it. With a, you get a special little pocket here. You see with some papers tucked in. And, and, uh, and, uh, and then this is a later version of it. And some stuff got rewritten because he hated to see it there was, and it forced him to write the book. At Oklahoma City Conference, he talked about that. And I don't remember who had the idea, but I had been used to the AA Big Book and Emotions Anonymous, which uh, was started as Neurotics Anonymous, and then a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist in Germany, Walter, uh, Walter L. from Germany, and then myself and Jackie, um, uh, or Walter because he was a psychiatrist in Germany and I was a psychologist, we were on the letterhead of Neurotics Anonymous, but it was run by an alcoholic who didn't have much recovery and he used the 
It, it was his own private kingdom. He didn't make any accounting to anybody of his finances. He'd, uh, he went and just kicked a group out just because he didn't like the way they did the things. And, and Marion from, from St. Paul, who had started that group that we first went to, didn't like this. And so she came to us and said, Will you, uh, I'm asking you and Walter and Jackie, will you help me start uh, a real 12-step type membership run Emotions Anonymous? And this was after we'd been the fellowship about three years. And I, had, I hated to be untrue to a fellowship that had given me so much. But her case was good, and I said, we'll help. And so we were three of uh, the original ten trusted servants that formed Emotions Anonymous. And, and Jackie and Walter and my story are the first three stories in the EA Big Book. Okay, I'm used to that. In that. In the, AA, uh, 12, you know, the AA Big Book, I'd grown up with. Okay, so uh, SA, you have SA stories, right? So here's, here are the SA stories. What we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. Again, King, courtesy of, well, King Coast, you know, you can see. Two dollars. And in here, in the original type, this is the original typewritten way each of the stories appeared and came to me. I just made Xeroxes of the original things, and so you see their typo errors and everything of everybody's the early stories. And we had a story, uh, a book of essay stories. And um, uh, it was kind of lousy, but... Because um, <laughs> I didn't find until years later that the reason the AA stories are so good is that a newspaper man in the early days of AA helped uh, the AAs turn, wrote their stories turned them in and then he took and really made them good stories so they really are professionally written stories or professionally revised stories or really professionally written stories and that's why AA stories are so good and we haven't tumbled to that yet because we're asked again now to repeat you know to contribute our stories and uh, I've had so much agony over that process I don't know whether I'm up to it or not but I might but I, uh, it, it's really not very important now, I see, either way. But, uh, so I had a storybook, uh, the essay stories. But the essay stories were never included in the essay book, and, and partly for a good reason. They aren't worth much. And uh, there's no harm done, but it, at first it was a real source of pain to me that they weren't. And I sold, you know, circulated these around to other essay groups uh, of the people that I knew. Well, then what happened is, so I got that group going, and we had a, tremendous group there in Oklahoma City. Everybody got, well not everybody, but people got sober and stayed sober. And um, so then with three months sobriety, 90 days, the OA group in uh, Provo asked me to come down and speak to them and give them a, a retreat. So I went down and spoke to them and I said, hey, sure I'm an overeater and I got problems with you know, food, but I don't want to try to convince you that I got the same kind of problem you got. Because uh, so I'll tell you about my sexual addiction instead. You know, this is a you know a kind of stupid thing to do, but that's what I did. <laughs> and they related to it. They could see they could make the transition. And then I did another thing that only somebody with only thirty, or with only ninety days of sobriety would do. I said, here, I got a sheet of paper. I'll pass it around. Anybody who wants, who's interested in SA, sign your names. It's in front of all of your other overeater friends. You're going to sign your name to a sheet that says you're interested in sexaholics. <laughs> Because I'm young and stupid in the program, I do something like that. And then I, I also, that's another part of my temperament. I'm very brave. I have great courage. And that's been helpful to me at times, I'll tell you. So I circulated the sheet around it. Fifteen of those 90 women, one guy signed their names as being interested in Sexaholics Anonymous. And one young woman came up to me and she said, Jess, she said, 
You said you got to have a certain... Because I had 57 when I came into this thing. I said, you got to have some age on you before you can face this thing. She said, do you think I'm old enough? I said, how old are you? She says, 35. I said, that's too young. Oh. <laughs> she thought I was serious. <laughs> but she'd been an AA, and she'd uh, been a prostitute, and um, she sold a prostitution business, which is, you know, to sell in the illegal business, that takes a lot of... What, what's the... What is it, the Jewish word? Chutzpah? How do you, pro- how do you pronounce that word? Huh? Hutzpah. Like Hutzpah, H-U? Like Hutzpah. Okay. It takes a lot of Hutzpah to sell a prostitution place. But she did. And then she was a real estate agent, an AA, and drug addict. And then she was turning tricks just to make herself feel good. Now that was the problem to her in AA. So when she heard there was an answer, she was instantly available so she called uh, another prostitute friend of hers and a, and a, and a guy, a counselor, uh, Steve, and um, they had their first AA meeting or SA meeting in uh, Salt Lake just shortly thereafter. And then what they did, those phony jerks, is they each did their first step on the first meeting so they could be in a controlled environment and so other people wouldn't have to hear their first steps. They could get it out of the way and get it over quick <laughs> and send them to each other. And uh, that's how Salt Lake got going. So then uh, I went to Minneapolis, or, went, or rather I went up to Bozeman. I had a school of life for people who had read my books who'd come there each summer. started in 77. Uh, when, I, you know, be, when I started White Knuckles Sobriety, I was looking for anything I could do to, to find some answers. And so my school of life was a way to bring other uh, experts in to teach and also to bring students so I could teach them and learn the things I had to learn. So in this, uh, this school of life, that was it started in 77, and so in summer of 83, I went into that school of life, and there were about 50 people there, and I told them my essay story. And uh, Jerry from Edmonton was there, and he heard my story, and he said, oh, my God, not that. Because a few years earlier, he and his wife had heard our AA stories, or my wife's AA story, and, and joined AA, and now I got another addiction. So now he's in AA, or SA, and he starts an SA group in Edmonton, and there was a guy from Jackson, Michigan, and he started a group in Jackson, Michigan. There was a guy named uh, Brooklyn George there who was a taxi cab driver, and his hope in life had always been to be a priest, but he saw the load of lust that he was carrying and, and couldn't become a priest with that load of lust. So the minute he saw there was an answer to lust, he went to, he found a meeting somewhere in, uh, around New York, went to it, uh, practiced lust-free life, and uh, 90 days later uh, signed up for the seminary. Well, meanwhile, the money he had saved up uh, was lost by his financial advisor. So he, his financial advisor called up and said, you got no money. So George, to get money to go to the seminary, had to go to the people he knew who were uh, Muslim, uh, Baptist, what have you, so they would support him like twenty, thirty, forty dollars a month each uh, during the time he was in seminary. He had to even go and ask people for money that he didn't even like, uh, and they supported him at seminary. But he said it's it's appropriate that I go humble instead of paying my own way. So the last I heard from him, he was going to the American College in Rome to complete his seminarial studies. And uh, um, I don't know what's happened to him. Um, the fact that I haven't heard further is a little frightening because I know us. And uh, slipping is natural to us. Not slipping, that's not natural. <laughs> so, but, but uh, God have mercy on his soul. Uh, he found what he, he needed, you know, whether he continued to find what he needed. 
needed through us, I, we don't know. So then, um, oh, and then I sent my stuff to my friend uh, Walter from Germany that had been in Emotions Anonymous, and we got to be friends And uh, at the clinic at Bad Herrenalb, and he started a group there in West Germany. And then um, we went to Seattle, my whole family, uh, to give an alcoholic retreat. And uh, so I told the guys there my essay story, and I said, uh, or told the people, the men and women there, I said, any of you who are interested in essay, uh, meet tonight. And uh, there were about 40 people there. And they went around the circle telling their stories briefly. And it was so startling. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Half of the people had sexual problems. And half of the people were sexual addicts like me. And you could see it just as clear as the nose on your face. It's like people who have temporarily or shortly, you know, like I've abused alcohol at times. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic because it doesn't take me to the land of impossible dreams. Like that's what Vince used to tell me. He said, I said, alcohol just puts me to sleep. He said, right. That's because you're not an alcoholic. He said, alcohol takes me to the land of impossible dreams. I didn't know what he meant until I came in here and then I realized all the time I'd had a drug that took me to the land of impossible dreams. I could fantasize any sexual exploit. I could just, at the sight of a face, I could immediately go into orbit. I had my own morphine shooter. And I had it, I've had it since I was five years old. And I could numb out instantly. Why should I face all of those ticky-tack little problems of life that I met ten times a day, 365 days of the year, when I had a shooter that would take me out of it? Okay. That's a hundred thousand times a, in, in ten years. Okay, when you duck a problem, when you duck problems a hundred thousand times, guess what? You've got a lot of reconstruction, not reconstruction, construction, neglected construction to do. That's what I've been doing the rest of my life. When I, as I hit this 30th year of my recovery, I, what in the world have I been doing all this time? And the answer is simple. It's just like what Dan told me last night in the car. You know, and this poor stupid Dan, all he is is God's messenger. You know, he hasn't got any, he doesn't know what he's doing, but God is using the heck out of the guy. You know, so he could tell me that story. He was powerless. He just had to tell me the story, see? So I could learn what I needed to learn. You see, so I am, I am changing everything about my life. Everything about the way I thought it was supposed to be is wrong. Many of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, but the result was nil until we let go absolutely. What this bracelet is, it comes from a, a Buddhist who taught Buddhism in communist China on the run the last 25 years of his life. Okay? You know when those last 25 years... So he got, the guy died in about 1955. But you know what those last 20 years represented? It was the time from 95 to 120. And we're not talking about biblical age, where we don't know for sure about some of those ages. We're talking about, you know, people who died in our times, where there's reliable records. So this guy died in 120. When he was about 105, he went on a 300-mile pilgrimage to express the... He never expressed his proper gratitude to his family. He went on a 300-mile pilgrimage and prostrated himself every seven steps at 105. 
Okay, that's what happens when you are enlightened. That's the same kind of transformation that Vince had. The whole mind-body-spirit uh, complex is so complicated that we cannot touch any part of it without affecting every other part of it. And by and large, most, uh, as I study the lives of the advanced spiritual people, many of them don't die. As I saw about AAs, AAs don't die until they get real old, most of them. A few of them die earlier of cancer. But because they're living a harmonious life, their whole internal physiology has changed. So what this guy said in, in his book, he said, what life is about is standing on a hundred foot flagpole and then taking one step forward. <laughs> That's a good thing for me to remember. <laughs> Hell, just the idea of standing on a 100-foot flagpole drives me nuts. <laughs> and the idea, because i got a fear of heights, and the idea of taking then one step forward. <laughs> you know, it's like that, you know, story they tell about the guy says, uh, you know, there's this god talking, jump off the cliff, you know, and the guy says, the dollar's up, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> and, of course, we step off the 100-foot flagpole and find there was a plane of glass three inches lower that we hadn't seen. And we're walking to heaven on a plate of glass that's 99 feet 9 inches from the ground. And that's what I'm doing now in my life, is I'm walking on that plate of glass that's 99 feet 9 inches above the ground because I stepped off the 100-foot flagpole. Scared the hell out of me. Okay, so we went to Seattle and did this retreat. And the second night then, the people who came back were the ones who were sexual addicts. And none of the sexual problem people came back to talk to us about stuff. Well, and, and then another thing we did, it said there were elaborate instructions. I don't have my, media, one of my meeting guide file here. Maybe I do. Anyway, there were elaborate instructions in the meeting guide. Don't publicize your place of meeting and don't do us and don't do that. The first meeting we had in Bozeman, we put, went down the newspaper and put Sexaholics Anonymous meets Monday night and uh, Friday noon in the paper. I, I'm insubordinate, I told you. You can see why Roy goes nuts with me. So, because it's tough for him to get me on his track. So, and we have only had one person in all those years walk in who, who was not a sex addict. It was a guy who was totally loony on sex and he talked about the monkeys and some stuff. But the honest, he couldn't stand the honesty, he never came back. So God takes care of us and we found those, all those earlier fears were unsubstantiated. So, um, so then Seattle had a meeting going. And then um, I went to uh, uh, November. In November, I went to the Emotions Anonymous con <laughs> convention and told them about my sexual addiction and uh, why I had not been able to be the kind of person that they had hoped I would be as a trustee and had not been able to fulfill my responsibilities because as a sexaholic space addict, a sexaholic space addict can't fulfill any kind of responsibility to anybody especially the one to himself, this precious soul or spirit that God has given me. I take and drag it in the mud. And then I lecture people about they should be tidy and neat and other stuff. So uh, I went there and uh, talked about that and like the founder, uh, and, and I knew about founders because uh, Mary and our founder was an overwhelmingly dictatorial person. She knew the way to be doing it. She was both inspired by God and just a a compelling, crushing dictator. 
And people were constantly calling uh, me and many in Bozeman saying, Jess, what are we going to do about Mary and how are we going to handle this or that? And I said, shut up and show up and, and it'll work out and take it easy. And, and uh, I never opposed her in any way, shape or form. But uh, we were together in a, in a meeting in uh, Europe. I was asked to come over to speak to the English-speaking AAs in uh, 76 in uh, Switzerland, in Basel. And she was over there, uh, and her contribution, I was there, there to speak to the group, and her contribution was to tell them, the way you want your meeting room set up, and she set up a very careful square of four square tables, and everybody sitting around the outside, and then nothing in the center, and the literature is supposed to be stacked over here. That was, you know, that's Marion. Now, God love her. She was the, one, the uh, guiding spirit behind a, a, an organization that meant life or death to the Emotions Anonymous people. Now, I was neurotic and um, emotionally disturbed and all those other things, but that was not my main drug. This was my main drug. And so that's why I was so relieved to, to, to get here. Okay, so out of that came, there were some guys there. One of them was a guy named Bill from uh, Minneapolis. And he went home and started an essay group, and that was the first place where uh, Jim E. came to, first meeting he came to, was that he'd been an SAA uh, before then. And so uh, Jim the Priest came to uh, that uh, essay meeting that Casey, or, or Bill had started from that talk there. And uh, then some people had left there and, and started some meetings some other places. And uh, then by then, the Dear Abby letter had come out, and uh, we'd gone down to Tucson, and 12-stepped uh, 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 Bert, Rick and I had gone down, to, and 12-stepped him, and we got a meeting going there. Well, then we went out to Simi Valley in December. Roy called us out there to a fellowship meeting, and um, so I called the different groups that I'd been a part of forming, and uh, they were interested in going, and so there were 16 of us there. And here we are. Uh, that's 13 of the 16. Jerry from Canada, my sponsor, is holding the camera. Uh, for some funny reason, uh, Roy wasn't in the group because we fought like cats and dogs the whole meeting we were at Simi Valley because we wanted to form a 12-step organization and he hated that idea. He said he owned the rights to the book and rights to the literature and he had a corporation and a board of directors and they would take legal measures against us if we ever did anything to take over this stuff and... I was some crazy pop psychologist and he would spend, devote his life to make sure that nothing I ever wrote would interfere with SA. Uh, and, that, and I've honored that, right, and, and I've never written anything that has, uh, because Roy is the inspired, and I mean this in the bottom of my heart, that he's the most inspired writer I've ever seen. I've seen, I played a hand in writing EA literature and it's terrible. Um, I, I, I wrote 12-step literature for one of the other fellowships and it's it was not very it was okay but not great and I've seen uh, the literature of three or four other 12-step groups and we have far and away the most inspired in our little pamphlet the most inspired piece of literature I've ever seen I always thought the, the first part of chapter 5 was the greatest thing I'd ever seen but when I saw our pamphlet I knew even aside from the fact of our addiction because I've read this to people I've read that to people who aren't sex addicts and they said my god where did that come from Okay, but this is the group of us who were there, uh, and then uh, Sherman isn't in the picture. So it's Roy, Sherman, and Jerry who took the picture. And um, and we fought for the, the whole weekend, and um, uh, Roy's an Armenian, 
And he's a Middle East person. And when I hear people from the Middle East talk about we're going to have peace in our time or peace forever in the Middle East, I'm going to think, where in the hell, is, you know, where in the hell is your history? <laughs> There's a story about the uh, frog and the scorpion. The frog is coming to the stream and is about to swim across, and the scorpion says, I'd like to get across the stream too. Let me sit on your back and ride across. And the frog says, are you nuts? He said, you'll sting me and I'll die. And the scorpion said, well, why would I kill you if, if I killed you? I would drown too. Well, the frog says, okay. You jump on my back. They get halfway across the stream and the scorpion stings the frog. The frog says, or, why did you do that? Now we'll both die. The scorpion says, you forget. This is the Middle East. <laughs> and, and, and just two days ago, I told my wife, that's why Christ... I always wondered in the early days why Christ appeared in the Middle East and why, and why Christ appeared when he did. I said, I know the answer now to the first question. If Christ would have appeared to the Norwegians, some Norwegian would have got so mad at Christ he would have thumbed his nose at him or given him the finger. But no Norwegian would ever crucify a person. So it wouldn't work. It takes the passions of the Middle East to produce that. Okay, Roy's a Middle Easterner. In fact, one time he told me, he said, Jess, he said, when you offer me a cup of coffee, I can't take it. He said, you've got to offer me a cup of coffee seven times. He said, before I can accept it. So that I know I re you really want me to have that cup of coffee. Okay, this is a different guy than me, right? In fact, uh, uh, Harvey was fighting for Roy's interest because Harvey didn't feel the central office should be moved from Simi Valley away to Nashville. So he was in a meeting trying to help... Uh, to help... Uh, Roy, you know, get this stopped, but uh, Roy kept interrupting and, and saying, no, as the fellowship rules, it should go there, even though he desperately wanted the cup of coffee. He wanted the fellowship to stay in Simi Valley. But he, he, he not only uh, wouldn't let Harvey help him, he sabotaged the help. So Roy and Iris came up to, uh, to our table there where Harvey and, and Nancy and I were sitting at, at Portland, and I told Roy, I said, Roy, I said, it's okay for you to ask us to offer you the cup of coffee seven times before you accept it. But I said, when you ask us to offer you the cup of coffee 42 times before you'll accept it, I said, Roy, that is carrying things way too far. And, and, and Iris said, Jess, she said, you sure know my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in fact, when we had the... Um, Oh, no. So we're at Simi Valley and we're having a, just a hell of a, just constant fights. And of course, Roy thinks this is fellowship. That's the fellowship he's known. When you try to bring AA or SA out of an AA meeting, you are not, like I say, it's going to be tough. Well, so this is normal, tough fellowship to Roy, but it ain't fellowship to me. This is agony. It's business. It's solid business meeting. Hell, I don't go to business meetings at conferences. I go in my room and, and take a nap or watch a football game or something during a business meeting. Unless there, once in a while there's some issue that, I, that need, really needs me. Well, maybe once, uh, you know, because I hate business meetings. So I looked around at this mess and I said, hey, we are going to have meetings that are purely fellowship. Conferences that are just fellowship. Because I'd come there expecting that. And then we went to a meeting of the uh, new L.A. meeting and it was a bunch of guys, you know, sober for from somewhere from three days to you know, 40 days or something like that. Uh, and that's not quite the kind of fellowship I have in mind either. So um, I just shook my head. And so as the group were breaking up to leave, I said, hey, we're going to have, 
we're going to have a conference in, in Bozeman, a fellowship conference. Because in Montana, I'd gone to two conferences a year. You know, and so we're going to have, say, we'll have a conference uh, next June in Bozeman. Well, Jerry was saying, that's too tough for me to get to. Can you make it someplace else? I said to Steve, well, how about doing it in Salt Lake, Steve? Would you intend to think that's okay? Sure. He said, let's go have a conference here. First fellowship conference for, for um, June of uh, 84 in Salt Lake City. And when I call that the first fellowship conference, Roy used to just really camp on my butt. He said, well, there were three meetings in, in there were three conferences in uh, L.A. before then. And the answer, you know, is, yeah, there were. But those weren't what I'm talking of. A conference is where the people sit down in the fellowship that you see in those conferences. In fact, we had a rule as far as business meetings. There could only, the business meeting could only last five minutes, which was long enough to decide where the next conference is going to be. That's all the business that we would have. So, um, to me, that is the first conference. And I'll show you some evidence why the rest of you think it was the first conference, too, even though Roy doesn't. And he just likes the idea immensely. And if I finally caved in, I said, Roy, I'll never do that again. Well, I changed my mind. But at that conference, I told uh, Iris, I said, Iris, I said, what we've seen is, because we, he he was just attacking us fierce, and there's correspondence there. And he doesn't see it as fierceness, because he's a Middle East person. And Middle East, that's that's what they have for breakfast, is ferocity. You know, for lunch, they have murder and mayhem. (laughs) For evening, it's bombing cars, you know, with kids in. (laughs) And, uh, And then yet there's a degree of repentance that spawned uh, a guy that started, uh, you know, another religion a, cu- a couple thousand years ago. So it's it's rich, very varied and very rich. Norwegian, that's pretty much the same, you know. Like the old Norwegian guy, he loved his wife so much that one day he almost told her. <laughs> I mean, that's what I know. That's what I grew up with. See? <laughs> so we had that conference. And... Uh, when I told Iris, uh, like I said, that uh, uh, we're not going to need these fellowship conferences because the fellowship can work together informally, just as you've done here in, in Cleveland. Who told you to do this job in Cleveland, Dan? Well, you didn't even do it, I know. Right. It wasn't you that did it, it was somebody else. Okay. So here we got a situation where all of a sudden Cleveland mushrooms out of the ground like an atomic bomb and nobody's... Nobody, no, 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 I can't blame anybody for it. Okay, that's how fellowship works. Everybody sees the need and steps in. Okay, and that's what, that's what I did, because as a fellowship person, I'd been trained carefully in the fellowship for 17 years before I got here. You know, that's got to be worth something. Okay, so we had fellowship. And at the end of the fellowship, we passed a sheet of paper around and everybody put their telephone numbers on it. And then we went down to Kinko's and copied that sheet and then handed those sheets out. So everybody, for the first time in this fellowship, could contact anybody else in the fellowship. Before then, all we knew, we were like a communist cells. All we knew was the people in our own towns. The meeting, the information on who else was, what towns were safely protected. And in fact, when the Seattle people were coming down to the conference, and they knew it was with AA people, uh, they didn't know each other yet because they hadn't met, sat down with each other, and they did at the conference. But when they came down to the conference, the people from the old group that used to be there in Seattle, which had died out, one of the or two of those people said to them, they, who later then joined the new uh, SA group that was formed by these people that I had talked to in, in the Goldbar conference in Seattle, 
they said, you don't want to go down to Simi Valley. Awful things happen down there. And the people we'd been there said, no, no awful thing. We know, we know Jess and we know that he knows these other people and it's going to be, they're going to be good people. And if Jess is in a sexaholic, it's, uh, you know, and he's prominent and uh, so on the surface an upstanding person, it must be okay for anybody to be a sexaholic. And uh, so they said, well, we're going to go. But that's what the people from previous conferences regarded those conferences as. And there was only one person from a previous, one of these two previous conferences at the Simi Valley Conference. All the rest of these people were people who come from groups except a couple of other loners from other places too. And so they came, the three, uh, it was Little Roy from Nashville, the guy that's in prison now for life, and uh, Sherman from uh, Philadelphia, who I tried to keep contact with him and I did for some years, but then he dropped out. And then uh, Kevin from uh, Fort Worth, who was in the group that uh, uh, Catherine was in, and then they, I think he dropped out. But that had been the story, is... Fellowship needs fellowship to support itself and nurture itself, and there had been no fellowship in SA up to that point. So all of a sudden, when that sheet of paper was passed around, guess what we had? We had 40 Dans. If you'll excuse the personal reference, Dan. My humble apologies. I'm really sorry. Kind of. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> this is a program of rigorous honesty. Yes, it is. And that wasn't rigorous honesty. <laughs> So we had 40 Dan's all of a sudden working, and 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 everything just went from that point. And the next conference, and oh, we decide we're going to have the next conference in Seattle. And Roy comes steaming up, and this is a piece of dirty linen. Roy comes steaming up to Tandra, says, "You can't do that. You didn't check with central office on this." And she's Tandra's hot, and she's about to give Roy a new set of teeth. And uh, so Steve comes up. And says, what's going on here? And, and finds out. And he says, oh, right. He said, uh, this isn't a national conference. This is the Western Regional Conference, <laughs> which happened to be all the SA really there was that we knew of, knew, knew of at the time or I, or I think ever found out there was. So okay, he said, if it's the Western Regional Conference, you can have it. So the conferences were called the Western Regional Conferences for a while for faith-saving purposes. And then uh, as people start coming to them from around the country and I started working with the New York people the first time they showed up was about the third conference said, hey you guys get the conference out in the west coast so we can bring our sobriety out there and show you or the east coast so we can bring our sobriety out there what we have and show you what sobriety is and it took a number of agitations like that before the uh, Buffalo guys finally had that first conference out there and that's where I met uh, Mark uh, from New York uh, there were four guys from New York came up there Mark was dying of AIDS at that time then and he told me, Jess, he said I would be downtown. He was in, in N.A. also. He said I'd be downtown knowing I should go home. He said, but my feet just wouldn't take me home. And, of course, now we got feet that will take us home. So uh, the fellowship just jumped out of the ground, and uh, a bunch of us uh, leave from um, uh, Seattle and uh, Stephen Tandra from Salt Lake, and we just saw all the things that needed to be do done, and we started doing them. And... Uh, and the fellowship just started to leap. And I'll give the example of that leaping. <clears throat> well, I can't, I can't grab my, lay my hand on that piece of paper like this. Well, I got it. It's too important. Well. 
I can say it isn't, or God put it immediately at hand. But what happened in 82, 1982, the fellowship received $732 in donations. This is from a CPA uh, audit that uh, the Fellowship Financial Advisory Committee made in about 1986 or 87, I think it was. Uh, Terry from former California, now North Carolina, made the uh, thing as the uh, accountant on hand. We put together a financial advisory committee because we found Roy was donating so much money and we needed to be financially responsible. And the recommendation of that committee was that the books be sold for $10. So in effect, we made the newcomers pay for the price of you cheapskates who won't throw anything more than your crummy dollar bill while I throw my $5 bill in. I, I give 20 at situations like when we pass the basket, you know, today for, you know, for national. Uh, and that's a bearer, bearer. I'm trying to get that up to 10 and 50 because all $5 is the dollar that I put in, in when I came in in 66 is just about worth a quarter now. So $5 is just about like a dollar in 19 when I came in because of inflation, which cuts money in half about every 10, 15 years. But, I mean, the fact that you guys want to have that low gauge, I don't care level of program, that's all right with me. Someone has to stand for truth and virtue and demonstrate it. That's what my old sponsor told me. <laughs> so, uh, but in 1982, there were $732 contributed to SA, zero literature sales. In 1983, which is uh, after the, when the bunch of us came in that year from all around the country, people with other, they all had another fellowship. They were all AA with the exception of a couple of us. I was EA Al-Anon and, uh, and uh, Sylvia was Al-Anon. Tendra was OAAA. Uh, all of a sudden then uh, uh, literature sales went up because we, we had the folder to sell the next year and contributions went way up to about like $2,000 that year, 3000 And then the next year they went up to like $10,000 because all of a sudden um, the central office had this book to sell, the early, you know, the kind of phony thing, but it, it was sold for, uh, not I think $5 was sold for it. So we bought a lot of books and ordered a lot of meeting guides and a lot of folders. And then the next year was like 15000 and then 20000 So we went from um, um, see, Roy was sitting on the phone talking to these people all over the country. And he thought the fellowship was a big thing, but he he couldn't see what was right in front of his nose. That uh, it was the same thing I saw with Marion in the founding of Emotions Anonymous. Everybody who ever wrote in was considered a member and a group of Emotions Anonymous. And I kept wondering. I'm an advertising man. I kept wondering to clean her list and write out and find out are you still interested or you know things like that. She she wouldn't do that. We would make an expensive mailing that cost us two three dollars per mailing with all the stuff that we're sending out at least two dollars uh, and wasting a lot of it because she wanted to think of, of all those envelopes going to groups and the fact that we only uh, we only had a very few groups uh, didn't bother her she, well she didn't want to see that so I, I was used to this so Roy saw himself as the heart of a thriving SA empire in the sense of all these people calling in but he wasn't looking at the $732 that they received in 82 and then the fact that that jumped straight out of the roof starting in 83 and 84. 
because he wanted to see this thing as starting in 76. And it did. That's where his formative part and the, where the genius of the literature and the inspiration of that stuff started. But it wasn't until a bunch of us with fellowship came to the fellowship and brought fellowship to the fellowship that it became a living entity. And there's an overwhelming lesson in all this. And that is our ideas, the ideas in our precious folder and this book, they are not worth the powder to blow them to hell. Because we have sent out thousands of those things to people and they die. These ideas and the stuff in that book, even with fellowship, the kind that we were able to provide, are still not worth very much. They're worth enough to make this organization grow like it did in 83 and 4 and 5. But they are not the answer. Because all that gives you is lukewarm sobriety. This addiction is not like Alcoholics Anonymous. AA in, in, in Los Angeles was formed by a guy who, his wife, he was an alcoholic and his wife stuck an AA big book in his suitcase. He got up from a hangover, a salesman, and said, my God, I, you know, I did it again. Maybe I better see if I can get a few of my alcoholic buddies who might want to recover together and we'll start an AA meeting on the road. He's on a trip there. And he doesn't know, he hasn't got anything but a big book. He opens it, says, I, he sits his guy, guys down. I don't know how this thing works, but he said, here it says a chapter that says how it works. Let's read, the, let's just read it, the first part of it, and then we'll talk. So they read the first part of how it works, what was read here this morning. And then they talked. And that is why in, it was in the West Coast that that idea of reading how it works, they didn't do it out east. But that's how that got started, was in that from that guy in L.A. Okay, that meeting grew and became a meeting. In Phoenix, I sat there for, I've watched that group sit there for 13 and a half years. And there still is just a handful of sobriety in Phoenix. Thousands of people have heard the ideas, gotten the folder, gotten the book, gotten some sobriety going, but there's only, uh, I, I guess, less than five people with over five years of sobriety in Phoenix. That has never happened in AA. This is different than AA. Way tougher. So the existence of the literature coupled by a nominal fellowship is next to worthless. What is worthless? Or what is worth something? What does, what does it take to make this fellowship grow? And people keep asking in asking me that question, just why did Nashville take off? And now you've seen the same experience here. Why did Cleveland languish and then take off? And why have a, some other places taken off? Why is Sacramento taking off? And it is very simple. And I have the answer for you, and it's the most precious answer in the world. And it's what all of this has been leading up to. And that is, the answer is selfless service. There was not selfless service to a substantial degree in Phoenix. Don comes to meetings, and he does some things, and he does some things to help the meeting. But he didn't have another fellowship to teach him what selfless service was and the example examples and the teaching that come out of those other fellowships. And we have to have that. The other fellowship, you can have an AA group and you can have a long, well, like I say, uh, uh, you start an AA group and it lasts. But you don't have a situation like in Phoenix where you have one, a, one meeting uh, 13 years ago and 13 years later you still got just that one meeting essentially. There's two or three other meetings but they're just people who go to the first meeting just having more, you know, 
uh, second or third meeting. Okay, we have got a tough disease, and unless there is selfless service on the part of somebody, we don't go any place. No place. Okay, and that is what the lesson of this story is. And this is what I saw. I would wake up at, you know, you guys robbed me of sleep here. Because uh, when you asked me to come, you laid a charge on me. And I'd wake up at 2, 3 in the morning and, I, oh my God, I see something. And, I, and so I had to get up and go out to my office and I'd sit there at my word processor for 2, 3 hours just typing away and then come back and go to bed. My wife thought I was nuts. Well, more nuts than usual. <laughs> And I couldn't really tell her what I was doing because um, she would get concerned about me. But this is what the thing that, as I wrote out this talk that I was going to give you this first hour, this is what that sharing showed me. It takes, it takes the literature, it takes fellowship, and then it takes selfless service on the part of at least one person in that group for it to communicate infectiously to the others. And Harvey was that person in Nashville. Bob is that person in Sacramento. I won't say who that person is here because it might embarrass somebody. I wouldn't dare say. So I, because of my great kindness and my unbelievable <laughs> sensitivity, <laughs> I'll not offend the great order of the universe. So, but that is an important, important discovery, and and I feel when I saw that late at night, uh, in the middle of the night, a couple of days ago, I thought, oh my God! You know, it had been there in front of me, but I hadn't seen it. And it, it took when I wrote that story out called my story, and it's uh, 15 single space pages, so it's um, plus like 20 pages in a book. Uh, it took me, it took that to see. Okay, that's the difference. Because we got we've got lukewarm AA or SA around the country, and then when we get red hot SA, we can tell it immediately. Now, one of the ways that I spotted this, and I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm not just an organizational person. Like when I I called Roy the other morning, and I, I laughed. I said, Roy, I said, what a funny world. I, did I tell you that story about the God has stuck the two of us together? Did I tell you that story? Okay. So I was telling that story about what it was. He said, well. He said, yes, you're really good in organization. I'll tell you how good an organization I am. I'm a consultant, a management consultant. I'm on the phone to people. Uh, I've got some clients here and one in Canada. Uh, and they pay a lot of money for an hour of talking to me. each. each they talk to me once a week. And I don't like uh, administrative work, so I just tell them to send me a check in the middle of the month. And they do. And then I tell them to give me 5% of their gross volume increase over the base year as a bonus so some of them are faced with some very hefty checks and so far they've been able to send them to me so it's been beautiful okay that's what kind of organizational ability I have so when I looked at this situation I was able to see a lot of these things right away okay this thing needs this and it needs that and it needs the other thing and I did just what a true fellowship person does is you just do it you don't wait for somebody to tell you to do it or you see the need and you don't sit around in your butt figuring somebody else should do it. Or you don't excuse yourself by saying, well, I don't have the orders to do this. I read a book as a young man called Reaching Out in Management. And it said, management, you need to reach out into areas. And there's a famous ad called Brown's Job. 
and Brown was the guy who came with his company and created his own job because he was always the person who saw the need for something. And so he had a very high job in the company, and when there was a critical thing that needed to be done, he did it. In fact, one time the board of directors fired uh, one of the uh, important distributors, and, and what Brown did is he went uh, and got the letter before it was received because it was a mistake, um, uh, called up and got the letter intercepted uh, on the way, and then... Uh, I uh, went to the board of directors and told them about how they'd made this mistake. Okay, then Brown died. It's a famous ad for Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne, the advertising agency, called Brown's Job. And then a whole bunch of people lined up applying for Brown's Job. And the point of the ad is Brown's Job is where Brown is. Okay, that is the place where every one of our jobs is when we die. The job we have done, each of us, is where we are when we die. That's how fellowship works. And that's the charge that I see for each one of you. If you see something that needs to be done in this fellowship, including refilling the water, whatever it is back there, if you don't do it, you got to live with that, buddy. And when you see something that needs to be done, do it. And don't sit around chewing your fingernails and hemming and hawing and saying, well, I don't have uh, authority or I, I'm, I'm, too, I'm insufficient, I'm too imperfect to do that right. Don't use any of those flaky final mouth excuses. You do it. And you get it done. And that's what fellowship needs and that's what happened in that first Salt Lake meeting. There were 40 people whose names were on that sheet, that address sheet. Here's a copy of it right here. Here's the Salt Lake City sheet. No, that's the Simi Valley sheet. That was, and then we did the same thing there. We passed around the sheet of paper so everybody could have it. But here's the Salt Lake directory from June 84. I keep a file of, of directories. And that isn't done. And that needs to be done in central office. We need to have the names. We need to have the names of the fellowship available to everybody. But the secrecy and uh, fear and, and with indrawnness is, is keeping us from that. But that's fine. It'll happen in its own time. A guy from, uh, uh, I can say his name, uh, Chan Libby, from the Libby McNeil and Libby fan, came into Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, in uh, Livingston, Montana. He uh, settled on the West. He came into AA, found he was an alcoholic, came into AA and started looking around for how he could get power in that organization. He said it was the damnedest thing I've ever experienced. He said they only had one elected person, that was the group representative, but he said nobody paid any attention to him. <laughs> So he said there was no power in the organization. So that's what I have done here, and that's what I am the charge I am laying to you to awaken more deeply in your own spirits and hearts that you will carry on and do what fellowship people do, which is see what needs to be done through God's grace and then through God's power, do it. And don't sit around worrying. I got into all kinds of trouble with Roy and all kinds of other people doing things. I did a whole lot of dumb things. But I did a lot of things that worked out awful good. And I'm damn glad I did them. But um, I did a bunch of other things like we had step study meetings by telephone and and uh, I saw that our intergroups uh, organizations the minute they formed weren't related so I set up an intergroup conference call. I set up an old timers conference call uh, I set up a Montana uh, conference call for people uh, separated. We tried to set up a Montana conference so the groups in Montana could meet 
that hasn't happened. SA and Montana hasn't grown beyond this, our two towns of, uh, of Bozeman and uh, Livingston. And I don't know why, and I don't know what pace we're to grow at. I have gotten very, very comfortable now with our size. We are just exactly the right size. I used to think God should send all these sexaholics into us. Thank God he doesn't. To me, we don't do half as well as we should with the new people that come in. And we get to be a deeper and deeper and mature an organization. Like that meeting I sat in last night with the depths of sobriety that was in that meeting was so startling to me because of the comfort and peace that it gave me. But I, 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 I was telling Dan about it. My God, it's so comforting here because I don't have a lot of work that I have to do. And, and, and I'm not well enough that I can do reaching out and 12-step kind of work in the totally right spirit I should be, which is a totally loving, joyful spirit. There's always a certain eff- amount of duty and effort to it for me still. It's going away, and it's diminished a lot, and it's almost gone in some areas, but it's still a load to walk into a kind of an unsober meeting. But we are not going to get quality sobriety by some kind of fiat from central office. We are not going to get quality sobriety by over-controlling our meetings. There has got to be sharing, personal sharing. One of the women that got sober in our uh, Bozeman group moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and she called me the other day. She's got, uh, I think, four years of sobriety. She said, yes, she said, in this new format that they're using down here, she said, I don't know anybody. I don't know what their stories are. I said, Karen, start a meeting that is just sharing kind of meeting and so that you can get to know the stories because we have to know that. We can spend so much time working to be in the solution that we move away from the problem and the, and the life-giving aspect it is for me to hear what the problem is and was. I don't mean sitting around dumping, but... The way, the way out of dumping is not through rigidity, it's through demonstration and, and it is spiritually carrying the meeting and doing these things. Okay, now I took SA's, all of SA's dirty linen and aired it right out here. It's never been done before. I was never in a position to be able to do it with any kind of uh, proper love and respect for Roy. I, I've got a lot of that done. But I did it just like I told you to do. I did it as well as I could rather than waiting until I knew I could do it right. And that's the thing that I, more than any other message, it's like what Vince said to me. He said, where I have gone, he said, you will go too. But you will do that only if you will willing to put aside your neurotic perfectionism and your isolating obsession with sex and self and turn to God and others. All this was scary. Sure. But there's something more scary and that's caving into our addiction and to our fear. That's what's really scary. Because I know what that life is like. And I know what this life is like. I don't want that other life anymore. So that's what's really scary. If I don't give this stuff up, I continue to live that half-life where I shall laugh, but not all of my laughter, and cry, but not all of my tears, and have joy, but not all of my joys. What I'm talking here is a fullness and richness of life. 
for going from the land of limitations is what where we're living when we don't have sobriety. We're going from the land of limitations to the land of abundance. Here we are, be, we are being rewarded and we're being rewarded abundantly beyond our wildest dreams. I come in service and give you a half dollar and you give me back ten dollars. So, so far I have yet to find myself serving more than I receive back from you. But still, despite that, there are times when I don't serve enough and serve appropriately and do it in an egotistical, selfish way instead of a true spirit of selfless service, which has been demonstrated to you by us at our very best. And that's what you should go for. Thank you very much. I love you. like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.